machine learning problem that's worth 10 Microsofts, which at that time would would be then that would come to about four trillion dollars. So if, you know, four trillion dollars is a decent incentive for people to move technology forward. Um, so those are you know that those two questions: How can we make uh, AI more capable? And you know what if we do? And what can we do to make sure that the outcome is is beneficial? Those are the questions that I ask myself. Um, and another question I ask is why do, why do my colleagues not ask themselves this question? Um, you know, is it is it just sort of inertia that that a typical engineer or computer scientist is is in a rut or on the rail of moving technology forward and they don't think about where the railway is heading uh, or whether they should turn off or slow down um, or am I just wrong I you know have I is there some mistake in my thinking which has led me to the conclusion that the control problem is serious and difficult uh, but I you know so I'm always asking myself you know am I am I making a mistake um, and I I, I go through the arguments that um, that people make for not paying any attention to this issue, um, and to me, they, none of the arguments hold water, and they they fail in such straightforward ways that um, it seems to me that the arguments are coming from a defensive reaction not from uh, taking the question seriously uh, and thinking hard about it um, but not wanting to consider it at all because uh, obviously it's a it's a threat um, you know if you're uh, and, I, and I think we can look back at the history of uh, nuclear physics um, where uh, you know very famous nuclear physicists were simply in denial about the possibility that um, nuclear physics could lead to nuclear weapons. I mean, it's um, the idea of a nuclear weapon was around since at least 1912, I think, was when H.G. Uh, Wells wrote uh, The Shape of Things to Come, which included uh, what he called atomic bombs. Uh, he didn't quite get the physics right. Um, he imagined bombs that would uh, explode for weeks on end so they would liberate an enormous amount of energy but not all at once over a long period so they would lay waste uh, gradually to a whole city um, but the principle was there and, and there were famous physicists like Soddy who who understood the risk and uh, agitated to to think about it ahead of time but then there were other physicists like Rutherford who simply denied that it was possible uh, that this could ever happen and he denied it was possible up until the night before Szilard invented uh, the nuclear chain reaction. Um, so, you know, the, the official establishment physics position was it could never happen, you know, and it went from never to 16 hours. Uh, <clears throat> and I, th I don't think the same thing could happen with AI because I think we need more than one breakthrough. I mean, you know, even arguably Szilard's breakthrough that figuring out that you could make a chain reaction with neutrons, uh, which did not 
get repelled from the nucleus in the same way that protons do. Um, that was the key breakthrough, but it still took a few more years, but not very many, um, five, six years, before a chain reaction was actually demonstrated. Um, you know, five to six years is an incredibly short time. And um, if we had five or six years to the point where there, there were super intelligent AI systems out there, um, we wouldn't have a solution for the control problem. And, uh, and I think we might see negative consequences. If we, were, if we were lucky, they would be contained. And that would be an object lesson in why not to do it. Uh, sort of like Chernobyl was you know, a medium-sized object lesson in uh, why it's important to think about containment of nuclear reactions. Well, I, mean, I, I, I can't claim to have thought too much about containment and control uh, early on. I, I've been doing AI. My first AI project was a chess program um, in 1975 uh, in high school. And at that time, I, mean, I read a lot of science fiction growing up. So, you know, I, I, and I'd seen um, 2001 and so on. So, so the, the idea of machine intelligence getting out of control and, you know, it, there, are, there are Star Trek episodes and all kinds of things. So the idea has been around for donkey's years in, in popular culture. So I knew about all that, but I think I was, um, you know, a pretty straightforward techno-optimist techno in my youth. And um, no, to me, the, the challenge of creating intelligence was just fascinating and irresistible. Uh, the history was I, so I studied computer science uh, in high school, uh, wrote a chess program, was very interested in machine learning, read some AI books, didn't think that um, AI was at that time a serious academic discipline. Um, you know, I wanted to be a, a physicist. So I studied physics as an undergrad and um, then I learned that, in fact, there, there was a possibility that you could do a computer science PhD and study artificial intelligence. And so I applied to PhD programs in computer science in the US, but I also applied to, um, to uh, physics PhD programs uh, in the UK, Oxford and Cambridge. And um, for various reasons, I just decided to take a break from physics. I had spoken to physics graduate students and postdocs uh, and professors and didn't get a very optimistic picture of what it was like to do particle theory. Um, that you, you know, you would spend a decade creeping up an author list of 290 people. Um, and if you were lucky after umpteen years of being a postdoc, you might get a faculty position, but you might end up being a taxi driver instead. So this was, uh, so I graduated in uh, 82. Um, and there wasn't that much going on. Uh, you know, it was just before string theory became popular. Um, people were looking for grand unified theories of physics, not finding anything very um, promising or even testable. And I, I remember a very clearly a conversation I had with Chris Llewellyn Smith, who was on the faculty um, that was shortly before he went to be director of CERN. And 
of the people that I had met and taken classes from at Oxford, he was the, the brightest, very engaging, very intelligent man. And I had a meeting with him and I asked him, um, you know, what was he working on? And he said he was working on taking all the grand unified theories then in existence, of which there were 81. Uh, he was converting them all into mathematical logic, which I knew about, having studied a little bit of AI. Um, and then in, the, in, in mathematical logic, it would be possible to, uh, to directly compare two theories to tell if they were actually equivalent to each other or different, um, and whether they had testable consequences. And I think that was a relatively new idea for physics to actually uh, do that, not by just arguing, but actually uh, mathematical proof. And um, I think he, could, he had got through 64 of the 81 theories, and it turned out that there were only three distinct theories. So all these people were producing theories, not even realizing they were the same theory as, as everybody else's. And two of the three theories were in principle untestable, meaning they had no observable consequences on the universe at all. And the third one could be tested, but it would take 10 to the 31 years to see any observable consequence of the theory. So that was a pretty depressing conversation for me. Um, and I think that probably tipped the balance uh, along with sort of the mood of the grad students and postdocs to, towards going into computer science and going to so California. So after I arrived at Stanford, so I, I would say I hardly met any computer scientists. I had worked for IBM for a year between high school and college. Um, and they had some very good computer scientists where I worked. And I did some interesting things there. Um, so I think that gave me more of a sense of what computer science was like as, a, uh, as an intellectual discipline, the kinds of problems people worked on. Um, I met Alan Bundy uh, at Edinburgh, because I, I also um, was admitted to the PhD program at Edinburgh, which was the best AI program in the UK. And, but by and large, people advised me that if I, if I got into Stanford or MIT, I should go to Stanford or MIT. And I got into Stanford, despite applying six weeks after the deadline. Um, and uh, they were very kind to consider my application anyway. Um, so when I got there, um, my first advisor was Doug Leonard. So he, uh, you know, so several faculty had given their spiel at the beginning of the semester saying, here's what I work on. I'm, you know, uh, I'd love to have PhD students join the group. And, and Doug was just incredibly um, upbeat and optimistic and, you know, really working on cool problems. Um, he described a little bit his Eurisco. Um, system, which uh, was a sort of multi-layered uh, machine learning system, which was intended to sort of be able to grow into an arbitrarily intelligent system. Um, so Doug was very ambitious, and I liked that. So I worked with Doug for a while. Um, unfortunately, Doug didn't get tenure. His, his ideas were maybe a little too ambitious for most of the academic community. and. Um, so some people did not see enough rigor or um, clarity in his uh, papers and experiments. And so he didn't get tenure. Um, 
I then uh, I then work with Mike Tunesereth, who was a much more uh, mathematically rigorous. Um, you know, he really liked every, every paper should have theorems, and um, he wanted to build a very solid uh, set of capabilities and concepts. Um, but he still had, you know, he still had the the grand ambition of creating truly intelligent systems. But you know, also he was interested in creating useful technologies for for machine machine diagnosis, um, design, automated design, uh, and things like that. Well, I mean, I also, I mean, I interacted some with Zohar Manor, who was um, who's more of a computational logician, interested in verification synthesis using formal logic. Um, so I absorbed a lot of interesting ideas from him, although he wasn't particularly interested in AI, so it didn't, didn't quite match. There was a time when I was trying to have Doug Leonard and Zohar Manor as my two thesis advisors, and they just didn't see eye to eye at all, so it didn't really work out. Uh, so yeah, 82 was when I went to Stanford. Um, so Feigenbaum was there. Um, and uh, Nils Nilsson was at SRI down the road. Um, and, uh, you know, Minsky, I think, had somewhat dropped out of sight. He wasn't publishing actively the last, he had done the frames paper in uh, 76, I think, which had influence. Um, but I think, you know, Stanford, as, as, a, as many universities do, they, they had their brand of AI, and they didn't really go to great pains to introduce students to everyone else's brand of AI. Um, so with, at Stanford, there was the heuristic programming project, which Ed Feigenbaum ran, which was very much about expert systems. Mike Dinesworth was, was part of that, but had a more logic-based approach. Um, probability was viewed as uh, not particularly relevant. Um, there were arguments as to why you couldn't use probability to, to build expert systems. Probability. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, but it started to creep in um, through, um, largely I think through Eric Horvitz and David Heckerman, who were graduate students in the medical AI program with Ted Shortliff. And they had read about um, Uta Pearl's work on Bayesian networks, or belief nets as they were called then. And, um, and I, that I think was, uh, you know, I, I began to understand at that time how important that work was. And then when Pearl's book came out in 88, um, I was pretty convinced that what I had been told about probability was wrong, uh, that it was entirely feasible to, to use probability. And in fact, it worked a lot better uh, than the sort of rule, the rule-based approach to uncertainty, which um, the Stanford group had been pushing. So I think um, so. My my thesis research was in the area of machine learning, but applying uh, the tools of logic to understand what was going on in a learning system, and in particular, uh, how a learning system could use what it already knew to learn better from new experience. Uh, and it seems to me that that 
that problem is, it was crucial and it is crucial today because um, when humans learn, they bring to bear everything they know already to help them understand the new information. And, uh, you know, so humans learn very quickly from often one or two examples of, of some phenomenon or a new type of object or experience that they might have. Um, and current learning systems might need tens of thousands or millions of examples. Um, and their, their design, current learning systems are designed to learn um, with no prior knowledge or very little prior knowledge, which is, which is good if you know nothing. But, you know, that only explains possibly the first five minutes of, of a human's life. Uh, you know, after that, the human already knows something and is already using what they know to learn the next thing. So tabula rasa learning um, is, isn't it, you know, it's a good thing to study, but it can't be a good explanation for intelligence, um, you know, unless you can show that you just start with this blank slate and, and it, you know, you keep feeding experience and it becomes super intelligent and we're not anywhere close to that right now. Um, and if you think about what's going on with current learning systems, I know this is a digression, uh, right, think about what's going on with current learning systems, we're teaching them to learn to recognize, you know, a sheep or an Oldsmobile, right? These are discrete logical categories. Mm -hmm. um, and there we do, we're doing that because it's useful for us to have sheep recognizers or Oldsmobile recognizers or whatever it might be. But if that's going to be part of a, a larger scale intelligent system, you know, what, and you, you know, and if you're a deep learning disciple, you don't believe that deep learning networks use discrete logical categories or, dis or definite knowledge that sheep have four legs or any of those things. Well, why, you know, why do you think that training a sheep recognizer is a step towards um, general purpose intelligence? unless general purpose intelligence really does operate with discrete logical categories, which at least in, introspectively we seem to. The, f the first thing I did that, uh, if you like, was considered to be a big deal outside of, uh, you know, one branch of the machine learning community was the work um, on bounded rationality. So, uh, so intelligence is, in my view, the ability to act successfully. Um, you know, and the ability to think correctly or learn quickly and so on, these are all, you know, they, they have a purpose, which is to enable you to act successfully, um, to, to choose actions that are likely to achieve your objectives. Um, and so that, uh, that definition of intelligence has been around in the form of uh, what economists would call rationality, what control theorists would call optimal control, um, people in operations research would call optimal policies for decision problems. Um, and uh, it's, it's clear that in some sense that's the, the right definition for what we want intelligence to be. In AI, the the definition of intelligence, if there is one, had been a restricted form of that. 
which is that you have a logical goal, you know, I want to get to this place or I want to construct this building or whatever it might be, that's um, the definition of success and um, an intelligent agent is one that generates a plan which is guaranteed to achieve that goal. And Of course in the real world there are no guarantees and there are trade-offs that you don't, I mean, you don't want to get to a place if it means dying along the way, for example. Um, and so uncertainty and trade-offs, these, these are encompassed in the economic definition of rationality as maximization of expected utility. Um, but it seems to me that couldn't be the basis for AI because um, it's not computationally feasible. So if we set up AI as, oh, we're the field that builds uh, utility maximizing agents, then we're never going to get anywhere because it's not feasible. Um, we can't even maximize utility on a chessboard. Uh, and a chessboard is, you know, tiny, discrete, simple, well-known, fully observable uh, slice of the real world. Uh, you know, and we actually have to operate in the real world, which is vastly bigger. We don't know what the rules are. Uh, we don't get to see all of the world at once. Um, there are gazillions of other players. Uh, and so the world is so much more complicated. And, and starting off with perfect rationality as your objective uh, is just a non-starter. So, um, so I worked on coming up with a, a method of defining intelligence that would necessarily have a solution as opposed to being necessarily unsolvable. Um, and that was this idea of bounded optimality, which, roughly speaking, says that, okay, you have a machine, the machine is finite. It has finite speed, it has finite memory. That means that there is, in fact, a, only a finite set of programs that can run on that machine. And out of that finite set, one or some small equivalence class of programs does better than all the others. And that's the program that we should aim for. That's what we call the bounded optimal program for that machine and, you know, and also for some class of environments that you're intending to work in. And there we can actually make progress because we, you know, we can start with very restricted types of machines and restricted kinds of environments and solve the problem. That's actually show here is for that machine and this environment, here is the best possible program. That, you know, that takes into account the fact that the machine doesn't run infinitely fast. It can only do a certain amount of computation before the world changes. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I, I think that basically reading a lot of philosophy when I was younger was very helpful in uh, coming up with these ideas because you know, what, one of the things that philosophers do is so they, so look, they look for places where you're confused or where there's some apparent paradox. And they say, okay, the, how do we resolve this? We, we step back and we say, okay, we're confused or we have a paradox because we have bought into a bunch of assumptions about what problem we're supposed to be solving. And we actually not, you know, we can't be doing the right thing if we run into these conceptual roadblocks. Uh, so how do you step back? and change the definition of the problem. So what we had been doing was trying to define what is a rational action and then, i.e. The, the utility maximizing action, 
uh, and then saying, okay, that's the objective for AI, build systems that always choose the rational action. And in fact, there is, with a bounded system, there is no notion of rational action that makes sense. Because you're, you're trying to ask the question, okay, what am I supposed to do if it's impossible for me to calculate what I'm supposed to do? Right? Well, that question doesn't have an answer, right? And it doesn't have an answer because the notion of rational action does not make sense for bounded systems. You can only talk about, you know, what is the, what's the configuration that I should have, you know, so that on average I'll do best when I'm faced with decision problems in the real world. Uh, no, I was aware of Kahneman Tversky. Uh, uh, yeah, I was in fact aware of it even as a grad student. I mean, their critique of rationality is an empirical one, claiming that, look, here are all these experiments showing that humans aren't rational in the classical sense. Um, but that doesn't solve the problem from the point of view of AI. What should AI be aiming for, right? We're not aiming to copy humans. Uh, and a lot of what humans do is just a you know, consequence of evolutionary accident. There's no assumption that humans are, are the pinnacle, uh, you know, that, that there is no better way to configure a human brain than the way nature has done it. Um, but nowadays, I think actually a lot of people are reinterpreting evidence of human irrationality is actually evidence of human bounded optimality that at least if you make enough assumptions you can show that the, the so-called mistakes that humans make are the consequence of having a very uh, a program if you like that's very well designed given the limitations of human hardware uh, and you would expect the program to make that type of mistake uh, and it does seem that humans are, you know, so another, another part of my work at that time was, okay, so if you are if bounded, if you, if you can't do an infinite amount of computation, then what computation should you do? And um, so that led to what we call rational meta-reasoning, which is roughly speaking that you do the computations that you expect to improve the quality of your ultimate decision as quickly as possible. So you can apply this to a chess program and use it to control the search that the chess program does. It's looking ahead in the game and you can look ahead along billions of different lines in the game. But a human, from what we can tell, is only looking ahead along a few dozen lines, uh, if that. How does the human choose what is it worth thinking about, right? That's the question. What what is it worth thinking about? Um, and obviously, it's not worth thinking about, um, well, if I make this really good move and my opponent does this really stupid response, well, why, why think about that? He's not likely to make that stupid response, and so it's not worth my time to think about how I would win the game if he did that really stupid response. So, so humans naturally do this. When you learn to play chess, you don't learn, okay, well, here is, here is the alpha-beta tree search algorithm, and in order to play chess, you need to learn this algorithm for how to allocate your thinking time to various branches of the tree. It's just natural that our brains know or learn very quickly how to allocate thought to different possibilities so that we very quickly reach good decisions. And so I figured out how to, uh, to do that and showed that 
you could apply this technique of rational meta-reasoning to control things like game tree search and get very good results without even designing an algorithm, right? And so my, there was sort of a, a background picture, which is I, didn't, I, don't, I still don't think that we should think of AI as a collection of algorithms, right? An algorithm is a highly engineered artifact for a specific problem. We have very highly engineered algorithms for, for two-player games, right? When you go to a three-player game, you need a completely new algorithm. The two-player game algorithms don't work, right? When you go to a game like Backgammon, where it's a two-player game with chance, right, with dice rolls, again, you need a completely new algorithm because the two-player algorithm doesn't work. But humans don't operate that way, right? You know, you learn to play chess, you learn to play Backgammon, you don't need some engineer to come along and give you a new algorithm. So it must all flow from some more general process of controlling your deliberations and your computation to get good decisions quickly. Um, and so that, if you want, maybe you just want to say it's sort of one algorithm, but it's an algorithm that figures out what is the value of the possible computations I could do uh, and then does the most valuable one, and that's the algorithm. That's it. And the same algorithm operates across all these different kinds of games, you know, single agent search problems, two-player, two two-player with chance, multiplayer, you know, planning problems, the same principle applies. And so I, th I, I think, so those, those were the two things, you know, understanding this notion of bounded optimality as a, as a formal definition of intelligence that you can really work on, and then this technique of rational better reasoning. So those were the two things that I worked on in the late 80s and early 90s that really, I think, um, are, you know, the contributions from that period that I'm most proud of. And then, you know, having thought a lot about rationality and intelligence, I decided I had to write a textbook um, because I wasn't seeing these notions clearly laid out in the existing AI textbooks, which tended to be, okay, well, there's this field called natural language processing, so I'll tell you all about that. There's a field called search, so I'll tell you about that. There's a field called game playing, I'll tell you about that. And they, there was no unifying thread, there was no overarching integrating framework. So I, I wrote the textbook to say it's all rational agents or bounded rational agents. Uh, and the, the particular methods that are developed in search or game playing or planning are responses to particular additional assumptions that you make about the environment. Um, and how rational decision-making occurs under those assumptions, right? So in search problems, we assume that the world is fully observable, that it's deterministic, that there's only one agent, and so on and so forth. And under all those assumptions, then search algorithms make sense. But they're all just a special case of rational decision-making. I mean, I had written some, uh, some notes for my undergraduate class, and I think they were up to about 200 pages. You know, they weren't they weren't particularly uh, intended to become a book. Uh, it was just that I found what I was lecturing to be departing more and more from what the existing textbooks mm -hmm. said. And I was actually quite worried that, you know, this was also a period, so the AI winter began around 
1988. Was the one. <laughs> I was exchanging email with the, at the Aspen Institute about this just yesterday, because uh, they had used the word AI winter to refer to the one that happened in the late 60s, early 70s. And so the AI winter, the phrase came, I think, with Hector Levesque in 86, wrote a little paper saying the AI winter is coming. And the AI winter came from the phrase nuclear winter, which, as far as I can tell, was coined in 83, because um, the National Research Council did a big study on potential effects of a major nuclear war on the climate. Uh, so that was where the nuclear winter phrase came from. So I think AI winter per se, with that name, uh, the first one was the late 80s. So that was after the collapse of the expert system industry. Um, and, you know, so after that, you know, funding kind of dried up, students kind of dried up. Um, and I was really quite worried that the field was going to fail. Um, and part of it was that we were, we were still using textbooks that had been written in the 70s um, or early 80s and were not really capturing uh, what we, by that time, so Pearl's book came out in 88, right? so by that time we actually had Bayesian networks, you know, which solved a lot of the problems that the expert system, that caused the expert system industry to fail. I think there were a number of reasons why the expert system industry failed. So what they were doing was the following. They said, okay, there's lots and lots of knowledge work in our economy. Um, it's expensive, experts are hard to come by, they retire, they disappear, you know, so there's a huge economic niche in building knowledge-based expert systems. And uh, the way you build a knowledge-based expert system is you interview the expert, uh, you say, you essentially ask him to describe his reasoning steps and you write them down as rules and then you build a rule-based expert system which uh, sort of mimics the expert's reasoning steps. And um, unfortunately I don't think it really works that way. So everyone appreciated that in many of these problems, not all, but many of these problems there is uncertainty. Medical diagnosis is the canonical example. And everyone thought of medical diagnosis, partly because it's the way it's taught in medical school, as you know, if you have these symptoms, then you have this condition, or this, you know, and if you have this condition and this other thing, then you will, um, uh, then you'll go on to develop this other condition. And so they said, the, so the reasoning process was assumed to be from symptoms to conclusions to diagnoses. Um, and so they wrote rules in that direction. And of course, from any given set of symptoms, you can't conclude definitively um, that a person has a particular disease, like Alzheimer's, for example. Um, and so there has to be uncertainty involved. There has to be some method of combining evidence to strengthen conclusions, you know, disconfirming evidence, and so on and so forth. And so they essentially had to make up a kind of calculus for handling all this uncertainty, which which was not probability theory, um, because probability theory doesn't admit of rule-based uh, reasoning steps. Right? In fact, you, there are, it's one of the main things Pearl did in his book was to explain why chaining of rules 
cannot capture what probability theory says you should do with evidence. Um, and so what tends to happen with those systems is that you know, with, with a small number of rules, you can tweak the weights on all the rules so that on your, the set of cases you want to be able to handle, it behaves correctly. But as you get to a larger range of cases and more rules and ch deeper levels of chaining, uh, you get problems of, of overcounting or undercounting of evidence. You get uh, problems where you end up concluding with much higher certainty than you really want that such and such is true because the rules essentially operate a kind of pumping cycle where they, they, they gain more and more certainty because of their own uh, you know, cycles in the, the reasoning process. And, um, and so I think what happened in practice is that companies found it increasingly difficult as they built larger ex expert systems, they were more and more difficult to get right and to maintain. Uh, there were other reasons as well, like you, know, you had to buy a Symbolics list machine to run these packages. Uh, you couldn't integrate it with your other data processing hardware and software. You had to hire special AI programmers who knew how to program in Lisp and uh, this kind of thing. So there were many reasons, but I think the main one was the technology was flawed, technically. Another interesting issue is, you know, is human knowledge really in the form that people thought it was, which was these, these rules that you chain forward from the evidence with, you know, adding uncertainty as you went along. Um, and it turns out, I think, to be quite difficult to interview people and get those rules out. Whereas if you ask the opposite question, not if you see symptoms A, B, and C, you know, what disease do you conclude with what certainty? If instead you ask, if a person has this disease, what, ex what symptoms do you expect to see? Right? That's in the causal direction. And this is how an expert actually understands health and disease. Right? They think about, well, this, you know, this microorganism lodges in your gut and causes this to happen, this to happen, and, and that's why we see uh, you know, bleeding through the eyeballs or whatever it might be. And um, so when uh, Horvitz and Heckerman were interviewing experts, they found that they could extract these kinds of causal conditional probabilities in the direction from disease to symptoms very, very quickly, that it was very natural for the expert to estimate these. And, um, and also the, those probabilities turn out to be very robust. So if you think about it this way, right? If, if a person has meningitis, then there's a causal process that leads them to have certain symptoms. And that causal process is independent of who else has meningitis, right? It's independent of, you know, the size of the population of patients, etc. But if you look at the other way around, right? So meningitis gives you a stiff neck, right? Well, if someone has a stiff neck, what's the probability that they have meningitis? That depends. I mean, is there a meningitis epidemic going on? Right? Uh, why is this patient in my office in the first place? Right? Were they feeling just really poorly, or did they have a stiff neck because they got into a car crash? The probabilities that you can assess in this in the causal direction turn out to be much more robust. Um, they are valid in a much wider range of circumstances than the probabilities in the diagnostic direction, because you know though whether that probability is valid, you know whether whether you have meningitis, given that you have a stiff neck 
is highly dependent on other circumstances outside of the individual person. And so, um, so all of those issues, I think, conspired to make the expert system industry uh, fail. And it failed pretty quickly. Um, so what happens in these things is that technology comes out, and it's happening now with deep learning. Right? Everyone says, if I don't get hold of this technology and build up you know, a group within my company that knows how to do it, uh, knows how to use it, then I'm going to be left behind. So they start investing in the technology without any evidence that it actually works to solve their problem, just as a sort of, on the assumption that if they don't, they'll be left behind, that it's, that's, there's a potential gain here, we can't afford to, to lose it. Um, and so they're all sitting there, and maybe after six months or a year, you know, they're still waiting for any return on their investment whatsoever. And then they start to hear stories that, oh, this other company, you know, they tried six times and it just fails, right? It didn't work for their problem. It doesn't work for this, doesn't work for that. You know, so then they start to lose faith very quickly. So all those companies that haven't yet had a success with the technology can switch overnight from thinking it's essential to, to maintain our competitive edge to we better get out of this, otherwise we're going to look foolish. Um, and so that's sort of what happened with the expert system technology in, uh, in the late 80s, which is a, a shame because by then right, we already had the technological solutions that would have alleviated a lot of those difficulties. Yeah. It was tough. I mean, I remember going to a dinner in 93 with a bunch of Wall Street people. And, uh, you know, I was sort of the odd person now. I was explaining they worked on artificial intelligence and, and it was like I was working on cold fusion. They, well, like, didn't, I mean, AI failed, right? It's just like, it doesn't exist anymore, right? As if somehow AI and rule-based expert systems in the commercial marketplace are the same thing. And so in, in the mind of Wall Street, the investor community, it doesn't exist, right? You know, their view was forget it. Where of course the field, academic field, was still pushing ahead. As I mentioned, I, I wrote a textbook that came out in 94, uh, late 94, that um, tried to incorporate as much as we knew about how to use uh, so uh, the rational agent framework, and then a lot of probability decision theory. This is the, with Norvig. So, so Peter Norvig is my co-author. And um, so to come back to the story about how, how he got involved. So I had uh, some course notes. Uh, and Peter was back in Berkeley um, from time to time. I think he was working at Sun on, he had been at, uh, USC, he had come back to Berkeley, he had then gone on to Sun on, uh, in Boston. They had a research lab there. Um, but we had discussed when he was at Berkeley with Robert Wolensky, who had been Peter's advisor, that we might try to write a Berkeley AI book. Um, and Robert Wolensky had his view on AI. Uh, he was a student of Roger Schenk and after a while, although I really enjoyed Robert's company, he's uh, unfortunately he passed on a few years ago. Um, we just couldn't see AI uh, eye to eye on the 
the content. I mean, we just thought about the field in such a fundamentally different way uh, that there was no way to get that to work. And he had a strong personality. It just was a little, there was too much conflict. Whereas Peter has a very, is an incredibly easygoing person. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's so successful. He, he, he does not try to project his ego or his ability uh, at all. And he's completely reasonable. You can, you can have a discussion with him and he doesn't feel threatened. Um, and he doesn't try to threaten you and it's very, uh, so it's very productive. He's also um, a really good writer and a great programmer. So we spend a lot of time writing code together uh, to go with a book. So that was another important thing we did with the book was to try to build uh, a suite of code that was as fully integrated as possible to you know, reflect the, um, the principle of the book that rational agent framework was, was general. And I, I think we succeeded to some extent. I, it was not perfect, but it was a step forward. Um, so I think the book helped to bring you know, what Pearl had done, for example, and some other, other ideas, reinforcement learning, uh, also came out uh, in the late 80s, but was not widely known or taught. Um, so the whole notion of a Markov decision process was, was unknown to most AI researchers. Uh, so we, you know, we tried to build these bridges showing that AI was really continuous with statistics, with um, operations research, you know, which studies Markov decision processes. You know, so decision-making under uncertainty uh, is what they do. Uh, you know, in economics, studying utility theory, how do you construct these, uh, these functions that describe value? Um, so we tried to bring all of that in and, and create these connections to other fields. And I think that was really helpful uh, for the field. I think it helped the field to grow up a bit to realize that you know there's more to doing research than reading one paper in last year's proceedings and then doing some variation on that. That There's actually huge literatures uh, in all of these other fields that are relevant to some of the problems we care about. Um, so that was, yeah, that was 94 and the book was unreasonably successful. So it's an interesting story. I mean, the, the, is, the issue of risk from, um, from intelligent systems and goes back to the very, you know, the prehistory of AI. I mean, the, the word robot uh, came from a play, um, a Czech play in 1920. And in that play, you know, machine servants rise up and take over the world. Uh, so there has never been a time when existential risk hasn't been uh, a thread in the field. And Turing talked about it with, um, I don't know whether you could say resignation or just blasé. He just says, yeah, well, you know, when, when all this AI stuff starts to work, well, we'll be lucky if they keep us as pets. Um, and uh, the int intelligence explosion idea, which came, you know, that, that phrase came from I.J. Good in a paper he wrote in 65. Um, uh, 
pointing out in particular that sufficiently intelligent systems could then do their own AI research and hardware design and produce their next generation very quickly and that process would, would then accelerate um, and uh, the human race would be left far behind. And so, and you know, people look at that and they say, yeah, that sounds right. And then they just go back to work as if uh, the actual semantic content was irrelevant. Uh, and, um, you know, Minsky pointed out uh, that if you ask a sufficiently intelligent machine to calculate as many digits of pi as possible, which sounds very innocuous, uh, then in order to do that, it will take over the entire planet or even the reachable physical universe and convert it into a machine for calculating more digits of pi. Um, and this was the point, so Norbert Wiener wrote a paper in 1960. Um, so he had seen Arthur Samuel's checker playing program, which learned to play checkers by itself, by playing itself, uh, and became more competent to checkers than, than Samuel was. So that was the very early proof in, you know, 57, 58, that um, the, one of the objections to AI, which is a machine can never do any more than we program it to do, uh, that that was sort of just completely misconceived, that machines can surpass their programmers if, they, if they're able to learn. Um, and so Wiener, I think, was at a f stage in his life where he was thinking a lot about the impact of technology on humanity and whether this, in the long, this was going to be a successful long-term future uh, if we followed along the current path. And he said, you know, and he used the Sorcerer's Apprentice uh, as an example. If you put a purpose into a machine, um, you better be absolutely sure that the purpose is the one that you really desire. Um, and he says, you know, this is, this is going to be a major problem for, I think he was calling it automation at that time, but we would call it intelligent systems or AI. And uh, we don't know how to solve it, in, but uh, you know, it's an incredibly difficult thing to even imagine how things are gonna play out over uh, a long future. But if we don't get it right now, we may have a, a long future that's not good. Um, so we just have to try our best to figure it out. So I, I find that paper quite inspiring. I would say, generally speaking, the companies that are doing AI prefer not to talk about risk um, because they don't want their brand you know, associated with Terminator robots, which is usually how the media portrays risk. Uh, it's a picture of a Terminator. And that's, of course, completely misleading, right? The media and Hollywood the risk is always, well, somehow machines become spontaneously conscious, and as soon as they do that, they're spontaneously evil and they hate us, uh, and then all hell breaks loose. And that's not the risk. The risk is just machines that are extremely competent that are given objectives where the solution to those objectives turns out to be something that we are not happy with, you know, which is the King Midas story or the Sorcerer's Apprentice story. Uh, all over again, so and that's exactly what Wiener was warning against. Uh, 
you know, so in, in Britain in particular, there's this notion of the health and safety officer who, who's appointed by the council as kind of a busybody and goes into everyone's office and says, oh, you need to have, you know, you need to have those windows locked or you need to have wider doorways or whatever it is. But you just imagine the health and safety officer going back to a million years BC, where these poor people have just invented fire so they can keep warm and, and stop eating raw food. Uh, and the health and safety officer says, oh, we can't have any of that. You know, it's not safe. You'll catch your hair on fire. You know, you'll cause global warming. You know, we've got to put a stop to this right now. And um, it's, so a million years ago would be, yeah, too early to be trying to put constraints on, uh, on our technology. But with respect to global warming, I would say 100 years ago would have been the right time, or 120 years ago, right? So we, we had just developed internal combustion engine and electricity uh, generation and distribution. Um, and we could, at that time, before we became completely tied in to fossil fuels, have put a lot of energy and effort into also developing wind power and solar power. Uh, knowing that we could not rely on fossil fuels because of the consequences. And we knew, right? Arrhenius, other scientists had shown that this would be the consequence of burning all those fossil fuels. Um, you know, Alexander Graham Bell wrote papers about it, um, but they were ignored. Uh, there was no vote. There was no, you know, I, I, governments tend to get captured by corporate lobbies. Um, and not so much the scientists. So you might say the scientists invented the internal combustion engine, but they also invented or you know, discovered the possibility of global warming and warned about it. Um, but yeah, society tends to take the goodies, but not listen to the, the downside. Well, the people, I think, you know, when, when genetic engineering got going in the 70s, um, most people I mean, they didn't know what that even meant. Most people didn't even know what DNA was. Um, I think had it been fully explained, they probably would have gone along with what the scientists decided, which is that, number one, we need to enforce fairly stringent safety constraints on these kinds of experiments so we don't accidentally produce disease organisms that uh, infect people. And number two, we're not going to allow experiments that modify the human genome. Uh, and that's what they did. And I think they were pretty praiseworthy. I think what they did was really uh, impressive, given that for a long time, you know, one of the main purposes of genetics was precisely the improvement of the human stock, as they used to call it. I mean, good old-fashioned eugenics, um, which, which was mostly born in California, I think, uh, and then exported to Germany in the 30s. Um, were, you know, that was one of the main purposes for doing all this research. So for them to say, okay, now we could actually do it, but we're not going to because the social consequences are undesirable, I thought that was pretty brave. It would have been interesting to have a public, uh, a real public debate. Uh, I believe they did not allow journalists at that meeting, the SLMR workshop that they held. They, the new meeting, uh, which was precipitated by, by the new capabilities of CRISPR, was, you know, came to the same conclusion, but it's a more leaky situation now. 
right? There are too many. There are too many scientists. There are countries where there's much less of a moral concern about modifying humanity. But the so I think it's always very difficult for a democracy to to decide on what the right regulations are for complicated technological issues. You know, how should we regulate nuclear power? How should we regulate medicines? You know, and, and often the regulation follows some catastrophe um, and can be poorly designed because it's, you know, it's in the middle of uh, outrage and uh, fear and so on. So, um, so I, I would much rather that when we think about AI, that we think ahead as far as we can. Um, and realize that the, you know, the, the right thing to do is not to try to hide the risks. You know, and I see, for example, the AI100 report, which just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, which, you know, so Eric Horvitz set up this AI100, 100-year study on AI at Stanford. Uh, and they're supposed to produce a report every few years. And they, you know, so they assemble a panel of, of distinguished scientists and they produces a report which, you know, it's intended to be a prediction about what kinds of uh, impacts AI will have by 2030 on a typical, you know, North American uh, person living in a city, you know, what sorts of uh, technologies will be available and what impact. And, um, but they talk about risks and basically they, they deny that achieving human level AI is even possible, which to me is, seems utterly bizarre that if that's the official position of the AI community, then I think they should all just resign. Because the report says that uh, there might be risks, but we shouldn't talk about them. Because if we talk about them, that might prevent people